Welcome to another episode of Being Jewish. My name is Seth. His name is Dave. Hello. Dave, uh, I do want to say that last episode, I felt really weird about our podcast because it felt like a roast. It felt like a this is your life. Um, and the feedback I got on social media was, boy, I didn't know you did this and I didn't know you did that. Um, the origin story all I can say is I cannot wait to do yours and to now book the next two episodes with guests really got you out of having to do your origin story. So all we're just I can building say, up folks, the, if you're building... waiting for his origin story, he's just going to keep finding guests onto the show so that he doesn't have to tell. It. 100%. But remember, Seth, the question you did not answer that more and more people are asking is what is your last name? We had a congregational barbecue, and one of our listeners said, I need to meet Seth and find out his last name. Did he find you? Yeah, and I told him. Okay, good, good. So that's the big mystery. And, right, if you I, want... I said, and I said it's not a secret. It's a secret on the podcast. So if you want the answer, come to Ben Abraham for services on the day that Seth's there that's or right. a barbecue or that's something That's right. If you else. live in Nebraska, make sure you come just to find out some pointless information. Visit the Holy Land of Livingston, New Jersey. Now, we are uh, thrilled to welcome <laughs> our first guest to the show. You know, when we created this podcast, we realized that we were doing a very small part. Uh, we had noticed that anti-Semitism, either online or just in society, was growing at a rapid pace, and we wanted to talk about it. And so we created this forum to do so. And as soon as we had announced to our various platforms that we had started the podcast, Friends of friends of friends of friends had reached out, and that's how we found our first guest today. Um, I had announced on social media that I started the podcast with you and a mutual friend of ours, and that's what we call in the business Jewish geography. <laughs> that's that's exactly what that is. Uh, and we welcome uh, Brandon Coffer, our first ever guest on our new podcast. He is the founder of of the social good club and he's going to explain exactly what that is uh, because i don't want to butcher it and that, that even in our in our phone call i butchered it a, a lot so what i said is i'm not going to touch it on the podcast but brandon is kind enough to give us a couple of minutes uh we'll talk about his side of the whole anti-semitism feel and we'll see where the conversation goes from there brandon thanks so much for doing this uh, it's a podcast that has six episodes. We have no idea how many people listen to it, and yet you still agreed to come on. Thank you so much. Welcome. Well, you know, I'm just hoping nobody actually listens. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's and good I to have you here. Thank, thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Um, and David, I'm not. I, I'm not going to let you get a fully away from your own story. So, so I'll be asking you some questions later on. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I guess just in, in general, if you want just the high level of Social Good Club, we are a narrative design content studio and think tank looking at how do you reimagine the way we're telling stories, creating content and campaigns around a wide variety of social issues. We've worked on clean energy, gender-based violence, future of work, um, all with high level institutional partners and uh, never touched anything Jewish or Jewish related. And in, uh, what was it? Probably about eight months ago, nine months ago, when young before last year, um, just I was at I was at services. Uh, Rabbi Sharon Browse at a car here in L.A. just gave a sermon that woke my ass up um, to pay attention to what was going on. 
And then the next week was Kanye and Trump and Kyrie and everything happening and just realized that like I couldn't stand on the sidelines anymore. And so we launched uh, that time. So I working on it, to put a good team together and launch new approaches, which is an organization that um, we're working on now, which is looking at new ways of it's a creative incubator looking at new ways of um, celebrating Jewish heritage, building bridges and combating anti-Semitism online. But just to go back a step with Social Good Club. You're telling me mm-hmm. there's nothing Jewish about it, but what you're doing is telling stories, telling narratives. This yeah. is inherently Jewish, right? That you are taking the Jewish approach to try to build uh, identity to change this world through giving accounts of what has been and shaping it uh, to go forward. That is inherently Jewish to begin with. What is? Can you tell us a little bit about your Jewish background that led you to that before we get to the organizations? I'm just very curious. Um, yeah, yeah, you know... Uh, so it's funny. I think like like everyone else, I would say I'm like I w- up until probably about three years ago, I would tell everybody I'm culturally Jewish, but not religious. Um, you know, I was the typical Western reformed Ashkenazi American Jew. Um, I went to Hebrew school, whether I wanted to or not. I had a bar mitzvah, went to bar mitzvahs almost every weekend uh, for about two years, but never really felt a real connection. Um, but always felt always felt very included in the people. And I think our storytelling was a big piece of that. Um, my grandma was a big storyteller. Um, so whether that was Jewish or or just Jewish family heritage like that was big in our in our world and my dad too um so I think storytelling as a means of teaching has always been something that has been interesting to me and I came from uh I guess you asked about the Jewish side um and so so yeah you know it was it was something I didn't actually connect much to um the religious side of Judaism the history of Judaism I didn't know a lot to be honest and I think that's part of the the sad piece of of modern day Judaism or or what you know has traditionally been modern day Judaism is that we've lost a lot of that richness um you know and that we've and it's part of why I think I've I've left and now came back as I've found new new uh new entry points but um yeah it's been it's been my my connection to Judaism has really taken shape in the last like couple years but as a from like a religious standpoint um culturally it's been there for a long time uh uh, great-grandchildren of, gen- of survivors that's been a big part of our story um so always felt very connected to the culture and community um and just recently starting to dive in and really understanding what our actual history is in our lineage and i love you mentioned i was actually going to ask you because i suspected something that you were at ikar with rabbi sharon Brous. it's an incredible community where uh rabbi Brous really formed this as a new kind of religious environment where we really honored our history as a people that existed at the intersection of spirituality and social justice, understanding that if we look at the prophets Mm -hmm. and uh, even uh, the Torah before that, uh, particularly in Devarim and Deuteronomy, we really cannot be a religiously practicing people if we are not doing what we can to look after those who need support in this world. And that's mm-hmm, the community mm-hmm. that she formed that I hear incredible things about and just see this work rising up. And we had the privilege of visiting there once, my wife and I, when we were in L.A. Uh, I'd love to hear more about uh, your involvement there and how that brought you to this point. 
Yeah, you know, my involvement there is really new. I A friend took me there, um, Rosh Hashanah last year. Um, I was there, saw the community, was just like filled with so much joy and spirituality and everything where I was just like, oh shit. So that next day I joined so I could come to Yom Kippur services, which I'm really glad I did. Um, and I actually was living in Colorado at the time. So I joined from afar. So I'd been joining service. So I, I was in LA for the for High Holy Days, but then um, been joining like sh- services and Shabbat services and different things that they have going on uh, online and just watching her sermons I think like wow it's just I you know I was um I actually reached out to her what was it like a couple weeks ago or months ago um to give her to tell her the story I was like I was incredibly inspired by what had happened at, at Yom Kippur I don't think you understand where this has come from or where this has gone um and so we got to connect and sit down um which was which was amazing and uh and yeah it's just been it's been a really amazing community to be a part of um and I think what you talked about, like, I've always been a big believer in the ideals of Tikkun Olam, um, but, you know, you don't see them, you don't really see them in the world as much as I would like, especially in the some in the Jewish communities. Uh, you see it a lot, but, like, not really living the values of what we say. And Ikar and Rabbi Browse is just, like, the pinnacle of that. I mean, it's like, there's nobody that's, like, more, you know, walking the walk. Um, so I was, so I was incredibly inspired by that. Also at that young Kippur service, she had brought, um, her teacher, Rabbi Marcella Bronstein, uh, who led BJ for a while. And, he's uh, a dear friend of mine as well. Oh, amazing. So after that day, I, I hit him up and I was like, I don't know what, I don't know what this is, but we need to talk. And, uh, and I want to teach, I want to learn with you. And so we've been learning together, uh, every other week. I actually just had a call with him like an hour ago. Amazing. Um, and so so he's been doing like. Yeah, do please. Um, he's been he's been kind of my spiritual coach. Uh, over the past, where you know we spent an hour today on the Shema, which was uh, which is a fun one. Um, and so so yeah, it's been it's been really great getting to be because basically I was there and I was like, okay, whoever taught this person, I need to learn from. Um, you know, talking about Rabbi Browse, and so I just jumped in, and it's been amazing. I want to hear more about the Social Good Club and how you came to that. Mm-hmm. What brought you to the moment where you felt the need to found that organization? And what have you been doing with it? I'm trying to see like how vulnerable I want to be in this one. Um, so <laughs> You get to edit things uh, out afterwards if you want. Yeah, yeah. No, you know what? It's part of my story. So I'm happy to, to share it. Um, so I guess some background. I was uh, in the music industry for... 10 years 15 years um and I was an asshole I was like angry and yelling at people I was the one walking up and down the office like it was just I was just not in a good place and I was headed for for destruction it was I wasn't headed towards anything anything positive um at the, I was also working in criminal justice reform so I had my toe in the impacts world but wasn't like fully there um was very passionate about it but wasn't like my full-time job and uh in it was October but it doesn't matter 2017 my dad attempted suicide and, he, and that really kind of like was just a wake up call that oh if I don't really find a purpose into it and and really actually it was um, so I was I was on the found him and he uh, basically, you know, I don't need to go into the, the details of the story, but with him, he had the book Man's Search for Meaning. Um, and it was Victor you know, Frankel. Victor, Victor Frankel's Man's Search for Meaning, which is an amazing story and book and um, is something I have like 20 copies in my in my drawer right now that I always give out to people all the time um but I read it all in one, in one city I saw it I sat down just to kind of flip through it and just realize and just read the whole thing front to back and in that I realized I needed a deeper pers- purpose in my life or I was heading down a very similar path to my dad 
And so um, luckily he was, he's good. He's fine. He's in like getting the help he needs finally. And it's like, our relationship's never been better. He's never been better. So I looked at that moment as a, as a blessing, but for me, it was like, okay, I need a big shift. And I wanted to shift and have a majority of my life be in the world of social change, impact, alum, service, community, all those things. Um, and still have a toe in the entertainment world and the creative world, because I saw the power of creative and storytelling as it related to, you know, selling records and tickets and merch and products and everything like that. So I was like, in my mind, I was like, well, if we could have done that for, you know, shitty music and shitty products, then we could probably do it for things that matter. And, uh, and so that was the, that was the impetus. And where has that work taken you? And where have you taken that work prior to, uh, yeah. to Judaism? Yeah. So, you know, I guess at first I was, I had no idea what I want to do with it. I was like, I'm going to, you know, I want to focus on mental health. I don't know what it's going to be. Um, and, and I, and I, so I got into researching, I got into just like looking into the world, um, found this, you know, the concepts of loneliness, social isolation, burnout, things like that, that were really like, like the epidemic that was happening. I just like, didn't realize how big it had gotten. And so at that moment I was like, I got it. I'm going to be the Brene Brown of loneliness. I'm going to be researching it, talking about it. Like I'm the lonely guy. Like I started hosting like these lonely dinners oh, and all these things. It was horrible. Um, it was it was a weird weird trauma response. Um, this but, was right uh, around the start of COVID, or before that. No, this was 2017. This okay. was in 2017, 2018. Okay. This is right after my dad my dad's attempt. Um, mm. and so while well, I'm still trying to do music stuff, so. Um, I decided I was going to do that. I got in touch with some, uh, or no, at that time, basically, um, I met somebody who introduced me to my now business partner, Louis Cole, who's a bigger YouTuber and creator, um, who just, I guess, happened to be saying the similar things. And they connected us. They're like, I don't really know what the hell you guys are talking about, but you're saying the same thing. So you talked to each other. We came together. We decided we wanted to create like a YouTube channel in the series around mental health. Um, but we wanted to get experts involved to do that. So we got experts involved and quickly found out you can't really solve mental health by talking about mental health. Um, and so <laughs> that's when we started to try to try to think what we could get into. So um, with a few behavioral therapists and scientists and some thought th thinkers and systems thinkers, um, we developed a framework called around fulfillment, which was what we were seeing with the antithesis of loneliness and, and social isolation. And fulfillment came in four temples, uh, purpose, mastery, service, and community. So finding something you care about, developing the skills to do something about it, having an opportunity to put those skills to use, and then a community to do that work with. Um, and with that, then we can start to break down mental health, loneliness, isolation. So... So we created Social Good Club as an answer to those four pillars where we would, you know, spread like work on a range of different issues, highlight things for different people, show them ways they can get involved and then find ways to take them from online onto offline communities to just do the work in different localized areas. Um, so we've been uh, for about four years working with the UN Women on Gender Based Violence. Um, we're in a big campaign right now uh, with the Department of Energy and an organization called Grounded, uh, Grounded.org on clean energy transitions to so trying to get a million new blue collar workers to take on clean energy jobs over the next five years um, in a big project around land conservation um, with the same organization Grounded, um, doing a big project with the future of work with the European Union. So we're in a bunch of different places wow. and spaces um, at, pre at pretty high levels. And um, it, but not, I'll be honest, like nothing's felt as alive to me as this work. And, you know, whether that's uh, intergenerational trauma, whether that's my great grandma, my, my, you know, the back of my, back of my head, just being like, you know, it's about time you schmuck, um, whatever it is, I feel very connected to, uh, to this world and this work, both from 
an anti-Semitism side and just like a celebration of heritage and ritual and like bringing people back. Because I think also like my generation, especially like we've lost a thread on what Judaism is. Um, and we've gone to Buddhism, we've gone to Taoism, we've gone to Dao we've gone to everything else, trying to find the things that actually exist in our own lineage, but we don't know about it. Um, and so a big piece for me is also that um, it's, you know, trying to trying to find ways to bring back more of the mystic, more of the spiritual, more of the meditation, more of the ideas of oneness and unity that is present in Judaism, but maybe not in like the modern day Judaism that we grew up with in, you know, Tarzana. You know, a lot of times whenever the subject of anti-Semitism comes up, it's usually an incident. There's usually an incident. That's mm -hmm. that's the way my conversations about it have happened. It's usually not, oh, remember the Holocaust. Like that that's not mm -hmm. the way my social circles go. And when conversations between the two of us happened, um, we decided that a podcast was necessary. Like that, that that's that's the way we decided we could act. What are some of the things that people listening that will say to us, well, I don't have a podcast and I don't have a social, you know, good club. Um, I don't know what to do. What can people who don't love social media, what can they do? What, what, how does a person listening to something that you create or something that we're creating the three of us today, how can they react to it? How, what, what can they do? I mean, that's, if, and we have research on this, that that's actually the most important piece. Like what we're doing here is not, it's actually not, it's just the start. Um, the conversations on the ground in localized communities is the only way that real change happens. And so all we're doing here is we're creating a billboard for other people to see and, and learn from, but it's, we have, there's, there is no change unless people on the, you know, in their communities that are hearing these things that are not on social media are just having their conversations around the dinner table at their third spaces, whatever is going on. Um, that's, that is, that is the, the biggest, the biggest piece to these movements. Um, you know, people don't listen to celebrity anymore. People don't listen to an influencer anymore. People are only listening to the person next door. And so that is really, really important. And all these, these, these people, these influencers, celebrities, they play a role. Journalism plays, they all plays a role. But the most important piece is that furthest down the stream, the person that is taking their kid to school and having a conversation with somebody, you know, at the pickup or drop off location. So when you say you're creating billboards, what does that mean? How do you, how does your work then bring them into that conversation or those conversations? It's, it's in so many, so we're trying to take on a number of different ways of looking at this. So we're not, we, I, I believe that there is no silver bullet to anything, whether it's anti-Semitism, cultural depression as the whole climate change, you know, you name it, you, like there's, there isn't like a, a one size fits all approach. So that's why we wanted to take this kind of venture studio slash incubator approach to this, where we're going to try a bunch of different things in a bunch of different formats in a bunch of different ways. So a few of the programs that we're working on right now, um, we're about to roll out this thing called the Dog Whistle Dictionary, which will come on September 12th. It's a platform around coded language and conspiracy theory driving hate, but I'm doing this in partnership with Ben Sheehan, um, who was the former executive producer of Funny or Die, and Jesse Goldman, who's over at Comedy Central. So taking a very like entertainment first, content first, comedic approach to breaking down some of these like harder conspiracy theories like dual loyalty or what does George Soros mean or what is neoliberal or what it, like just these all these different things that you know we see, we know, we feel. Um, yeah. but there's there's a deeper, richer history to that. So giving people just the tools to have those conversations or understand things that I think that's just the beginning. But even that is like 
the tip of the iceberg because you know i believe that conspiracy theory coded language all that stuff keeps us unable to build allyship and so until we start breaking that down like that's just the step zero to get to the first step of the work of being able to like actually get to like whatever is real like i mean you know we don't need to get into israel but there's there's just like all it's all you know it's all one and the same so and so i so there, that's one project um another project we're rolling out a uh a new program at nyu in the innovation school on american jewish heritage and heritage and storytelling for content creators so that could be from jewish organizations or content creators with just influence um to be able to understand what what true representation is what is the true stories of anti-semitism what is the the different nuances and levers of this kind of work in this movement so that's really amazing and interesting and doing that with uh um nyu and amy spitalnik and vlad kaken and a few other really amazing people um and then what else are we doing we've got uh we're doing a big interface shabbat at the 60th anniversary of the march on washington um, so that'll be really amazing, really focus on building, building community or rebuilding community, uh, between the black and Jewish community. So that's a huge, huge focus of ours. Um, that's one of the early episodes a lot of, of this podcast around. we did. We did, we talked about the black and Jewish community and how we need to all get along. It's just, it's funny how Dave, it's funny how Brandon's work and our work are parallel. Like when I talked to Brandon offline, that was one of the things I noticed. He was doing our podcast without doing our podcast. Like it's. <laughs> very similar that's fun yeah we we spoke about a couple of things that you touched on with the education around the veiled language right we i was at an naacp conference that i was part of where the adl was actually presenting their work specifically on that for the need to mm -hmm. educate people who aren't just jewish we i'm participating now in that kind of a dialogue between the black community and the jewish community uh that was set up by the New Jersey Performing Arts Center in Newark. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it sounds like what you're doing is really using your skills in storytelling and using your connections in entertainment to tell these stories in a particularly effective way to then mm -hmm. promote those conversations and uh, and really give people the foundations where they can actually have conversations with fact and with knowledge rather than just speculating and believing whatever pops up in their social media feed. Thousand percent. And we need new messengers and new messages. That's the that's the biggest thing. And so uh, NCRI, the Network Contagion Research Institute, did this study. I don't have the numbers, so I won't spit out a, a, a number on this, but a huge majority of counter messaging created by pro-Jewish accounts to combat anti-Semitism gets trapped in an echo chamber. It's Jews talking to Jews. It's not reaching the audience it needs to reach. And we can feel like we're making moves because there's a, there's enough Jews to get a million likes on something or to get a, a bunch of comments on something. So we think that it's successful, but really we're just talking to the already converted and we're not making a difference in really anything. And so by able to by seeing that and then be able to do the research to understand where is anti-Semitism actually growing, um, we can target messaging and we can be much more nuanced with how we're approaching that message, the partnerships we're developing, how we're developing those, um, how we're listening to each other. Like it's just like I just think that there's we need modern tools for the modern problem, and we're some a lot of times we're using you know tools from the sixties. So what are the modern tools that are actually effective at reaching the people we wouldn't typically reach? Uh, you could say that comedy will reach them, but Sometimes it feels like comedy's in that same echo chamber. Mm -hmm. It is. I, it's it's not about com the comedy as a genre. I think it, it could work. It cannot work. I think it's who's the who's the person that's 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 speaking. What are they speaking about? Do we actually understand like what they're trying to drive into? I think that. So the tools are. We have a lot of technology available to us. We have a lot of listening tools. We have a lot of 
um, analysis on sentiment, uh, sentiment analysis and affinity cluster. We have the ability to really get granular and nuance in how this is happening. It's, and they're, the far right's using this. They've been doing it for a long time. We saw a complete collapse of democracy because of it. So it's like, if we can use the, the same tools that have been used to break us apart, to pull us back together, um, I believe it can be done. The whole thing is, uh, uh, it's fascinating work. Um, what kind of pushback do you see? What kind of pushback from where? Where do you want me to start? <laughs> but that's the thing. Like, I, I think people need to see the examples of that because, you know, you're right. The people listening to this are supporters. You know, you're, 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 you you yeah. are right. We need to see how how it's being attacked. Okay, so. I can start rattling them off. Um, to to begin with, just is, give me one the from first this thing. I, uh, the, well, the oh, this is the, this is a good one. The first thing I ever experienced, which is something, which is what what really pulled me into this in a, in a in a way. This was pre ecar where I just kind of realized that we didn't have the allyship that other people do. Was um, I had just finished campaigning for uh, you know for the twenty twenty election for saving democracy for racial justice for everything that was happening in twenty twenty we were very very active very engaged spent hundreds of thousands of dollars of our own money on on these on these on this project we we meant it and we were there for a real reason and in you know May of twenty twenty one I think when there was there was some conflicts erupting in in Israel there was I started noticing a lot of anti semitism um veiled as anti Israeli critique um which I'm we can get into that if we need to but um you know I think there was credible critique of Israel of course but there's a lot of people using that to spread anti semitic beliefs in the diaspora and so what I noticed was even in my progressive spaces the like the organizers I had been working with the people I had been like in the trenches with. We're saying shit that was like, yo, that's not okay. Like, you can't be saying those types of things. And very naively, I was like, no, we can fix this. Like, I'll just get them all together. We'll do a couple of Zoom workshops, and like, we'll we'll say, we'll you know, we'll end anti-Semitism in progressive spaces at least. Um, and what I found was, I when I when I picked up, yeah, right. Um, I, this was not like I said, this was my my first thing, so I was very naive in this. Um, I picked up the phone and started calling like the top ten people that I've been working with, and at best, I got. Um, I completely appreciate where you're going through and the struggles. I see it, but I just don't have the resources or time to to spend anywhere else. My people are dying in the streets, so I can't do anything, which I get and I understood. Um, but then at worst was the Holocaust was a long time ago. You guys are in power. Why are you calling me? And that was something that just like really woke me up to some of just like, oh, this is different than all the others. And so then, you know, it comes down to, you know, when I, when I ask an influencer or a creator to make content around climate, around gender violence, around gun control, around anything, it's 99% yes, with maybe a no if there's something, they, they have a brand deal, there's just some reason they can't do it. When it comes to anti-Semitism and, and, and speaking up for the Jewish people, um, there's so much reluctance. And not because they don't want to, but because they know that anti-Semitism exists. They know what they're going to get when they put their when they when they step forward into it. They know that they're going to get flooded with bots. I mean, we you know we did a study on um, Billie Eilish kind of did some some pro-Jewish messaging and flooded with with you know anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist type type language. But we found 87 percent of uh, the comments were were fake were from bot accounts. And wow. so this is unlike all the others. Um, there is a massive organized uh organized push against us 
and and this it, it isn't just in it isn't just in conditioning um so there so the the pushback is is so many is is so is across the board um you know within the jewish community um there's of course you know three jews five opinions so every you know there's there's a lot of pushback there um but not like in some ways and not in some, not in other ways i think i I'm, I can be a radical centrist in some interesting ways. And so I can speak to both sides. I can speak to all sides. I think I'm also doing something completely new and, and interesting that everybody is interested in. Um, so I haven't had a ton of pushback necessarily, but I have had a lot of different organizations, like just talking shitty about other organizations and other people and other things that they're doing. And this, it's like, I don't under, I, I understand that we, it, it comes from, we all want the same thing and the safety of the Jewish people. Um, we are all scared. And we all have our own ideas of how how that works, and so that fear keeps us unable to really listen um, and see the others. And like, I I spent a lot a long time studying nervous systems during COVID, and I just see a bunch of dysregulation and fear that keeps us in panic mode and unable to be tr truly strategic. So, we were talking before about the different tools that we have to combat this. I'm a little fixated on the bots right now. Hearing 87% of those comments were bots. What kind of tools do we have to combat? Let's say, let's say between 70 to 87%. Oh. Like, Regardless. I don't know exactly are, it's still are, a huge there number. There are so many bots on social media, you have no idea. So how do we combat yeah. that? Aside from legislation, which will take eons to pass, right? What is our tactic that is the equivalent to uh, at least neutralize well, that so if not to do better? You could play the same game. Um, you could flood, you could flood the same accounts with pro-Jewish messaging and bot farms. Um, I don't know if stooping to that level makes sense because all that will do is, is really be the final nail in the coffin of social media, which maybe that's for the better. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but no, I, I think if, if, if that starts happening and just every comment thread is flooded with bots on both sides, then like, there's no point in being there anymore. It's not the town square. So I don't think that's necessarily the, the thing. I think platform accountability is a huge piece, like the actual platforms getting their shit together. Um, there's, there's nothing that's, there's nothing better than that. Um, I was, I support this interparliamentary task force for combating online anti-Semitism that is co-chaired by, uh, Anthony Housefather, who's an MEP or an MP up in Canada and, uh, Congresswoman, Deb, Congresswoman, Deb, Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, um, from Florida. And it's a, it's made up of 30 Congress and parliament members from over 30 countries coming together to figure out what the hell we can do about this. Um, and I was in Brussels a few weeks ago with them um, when they had the heads of government affairs from uh, Twitter, YouTube and Meta um, testifying in, in to them. And like, listen, they're, they're doing some small things, but it was a lot of um, a lot of not answering questions. A lot of deflecting, a lot of pushing things off. I mean, you know, uh, a parliament member house father, he asked the same questions he did last year, which got the, they got the exact same answers. So it's just like, it's up to the platforms to actually care. Um, and, and do they give a shit? Um, do they actually want to, to protect people on their platforms or do they want to spread hate and vitriol because that gets more likes and views? Um, you know, so I think that's uh, th that's really the only, from that end. That's what we can do. There's a myriad of other things we can start doing. Well, um, in terms of I don't, don't, don't want to make this a whole social language. media thing, but you know, Elon's made this worse, and it, bots, it incredibly has. There was the, a... the, the bots are 
everywhere. Like every time I tweet something about, you know, Arsenal or, or, you know, my sports teams or my podcasts or anything, there are bots going everywhere. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's nuts. And it can be about frivolous things. So imagine yeah, yeah, doing yeah. something. On, and what has happened as a result is I don't comment on real things anymore. Not, not on mm-hmm. that platform anymore. No, I save it for this yeah. podcast. <laughs> yeah. And, maybe and, and, and another thing is like, yeah. And another thing is with, even with, you know, Twitter or X or whatever the hell they're calling it now. Um, yeah, by the time we posted uh, it, could have know, a when, new name. Why? Yeah. Who knows? Or, or it's gone. <laughs> um, but, uh, but no, like, when Musk announced he was taking over, we saw a thousand percent increase in in neo Nazi accounts. Um, we saw you know hate and vitriol spread like never before. I can't even imagine what's going to happen leading up to the twenty twenty four election. Um, you know next year is going to be a. We saw I think I don't know this. I think it was like a two hundred and forty percent. Oh no, sorry, I'm I'm making up numbers. Um, so a, a massive increase around twenty twenty and in twenty sixteen, and so it's going to happen again. It's going to be worse. Um. And so I think that plays a, a huge factor into it too. I mean, I don't know if you saw uh, the Trump email, like the fundraising email that came out that had like a picture of George Soros as the puppet master over Biden at the White House, like, you know, with with a, with a communist flag. It's just like, are we really still doing that? Like, and I saw it side by side with the, the exact same propaganda from the 1930s Germany, like the same thing. It was just drawn oh, versus a picture. It was Elon just, it called was Soros a Nazi. He, yeah. he, he called, he, he called, and he called, and he, and, and, and he said something about what, what do we talk about, Dave? It was Magneto. They were yeah. talking about Magneto. I mean, Putin used the same kind of imagery to try to uh, convince his people that Ukraine uh, was evil, right? So the Ukrainians mm-hmm. were a bunch of Nazis, Zelensky. So it's crazy. I want to go back now to one of the earlier things that you said in our conversation, because as a rabbi, when I'm trying to make sure that the young people in our congregation are raised up with strong Jewish identities, I try to focus less on the negative forces uh, attacking us from outside mm-hmm. and I believe that the best way that we can support our kids, the next generation, is to build really strong, powerful senses of who they are, which means mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. not only focus on the awful things happening outward, but on the amazing things that are within. And you mm-hmm. mentioned that you're discovering all of these gems within Judaism that you had no idea existed, that you saw in Buddhism, Taoism. What is one of the most amazing things that you have discovered about your own Jewish identity that you would want to share? Mm, I think it's something and I'm still wrapping my head around this idea, but that the the thing I've seen that's that's different in Judaism than anything else is everything from what I know, every law, everything that we're supposed to be doing is is meant to make us a better person here in the world, not for an afterlife, not for what's coming next, but to just be as good as you can like like i've started i've started observing shabbat now i'm not shober shabbos like i don't i know don't keep kosher i I use my phone i do these different things but i observe it in a way because in some ways like i just don't use my phone before 2 p.m i try to you know attend some service i try to just move slow like i uh, you know i host shabbat dinners every friday because it's just a rhythm and it's a forced meditation and it's a pause and if we have that like the single pause in the week you know that is that is that you know expanded throughout our extrapolated throughout our life is is un you know invaluable 
Um, so I think it's just that the, or, you know, even thinking about, I don't keep kosher, but the reasons that people keep kosher, it, like, or that was created was around safety. It was around health. It wasn't really around anything else. Um, and so I think that the, the logical side of all these different things, um, versus just, you do it because I told you to do it, which never worked for me growing up and it's never worked <laughs> for me now. But like, once I understood that, like, oh no, don't eat shellfish because they're the dirtiest fish in the sea. Um, that made sense to me. You know, it's just like, it was just these, these small things. It was like, you know, pigs, the dirtiest animal on land, like probably don't eat that. Like, you know, so it's just like these, these interesting little nuggets. But I think the thing that brought me back the most, I think that was one of the more interesting things that I started to wrap my head around because I also left because I really didn't believe, I like, I don't believe in anything dogmatic. I don't believe in, you know, wrote, wrote religion or things like that. So, which is what I felt like it was. So learning these things actually like, like, brought some magic back to him in an interesting way but i think it's like source and oneness i think that was the biggest thing of like what god actually means and what god actually is um and once i realized that because my belief i've always believed in god as source i believe that i believe in science i believe in evolution i believe in all these things but science will tell you that something can come from nothing so something had to start the series of events that led us to where we are today so that single thing to me, in my mind is source and source god whatever you want to call it is now manifested in everything that's come after that first like you know uh domino went down um so that i think is the interesting thing and that's where that's what exists in all these other you know indigenous lineages and buddhist lineage and eastern lineage all these different things and what i saw was that you know it's like the judaism i i grew up with was the Judaism that existed back in the ancient days before Aristotle, before Plato, before philosophy actually got brought into it and created the mystical sides, the Kabbalistic sides or things like that. Actually, I believe it probably existed before, way before that, but then we went through another modern modernization period. And I think we're in that period right now. And there's actually a big opportunity to kind of return to those ideas of source and oneness using the language that is that people have become used to, whether it's meditation or it's these other different things, but using the language of some of these other traditions, similar to the way to like, you know, Maimonides or somebody like that use, you know, Plato and Aristotle to bring these, to reimagine what Judaism was. I think like it's happening again and it can happen again. And somebody said this the other day that it was, it's every generation's responsibility to reimagine what Judaism is for them. And so I think we've just stopped doing that. And so now it's like, I think now we're back to it. Um, and I was living in Boulder for a while, which is heavily influenced by, you know, Reb Zalman and the renewal movement and things like yes. that. So it's like, so, you know, and I was actually just talking to somebody earlier today who I found out grandfather in, like was the founder of the reconstructionist movement. It's like all like, so it's like, oh, we can do this. This has happened before. It's happened in modern times. Like I'm not gonna be the one doing that, but, um, you but know, you're taking part people, in it. I'm taking absolutely taking part in it and finding my teachers. You know, there's uh, an amazing guy in New York uh, who you probably know, Rabbi Amahai Lalavi. Oh, of course. Um, at Lab Shul. Um, you know, I went and sat with him for for some time. He's become a you know a collaborator and and friend. And I I sat with him for a little bit. And just the way he was speaking about about Judaism, about the Torah, about his philosophy on it, I was just like, holy shit! You know, Sharon Browse. There's uh, Rabbi Karen here in LA also. Like, there's Marcelo. Like, there's just so many like amazing teachers that are already thinking this. That I'm like, I just need to find them. So that's what I've been doing. I've been you know collecting rabbis. I love that. I feel like it's like Pokemon, you know. <laughs> Oh, you catch can never have enough teachers. You can never have enough teachers. No, and, 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 friends. and I think that's actually the, yeah, and that's actually the thing that, that really brought me into this in a, in a meaningful way was my teachers. 
Um, I had some, I, I early on in this journey of reconnecting to Judaism, got connected to some powerful people um, and, and just like sent me off the right rabbit holes. Well, Brandon, I cannot thank you enough uh, for, for doing this from taking the time and for sharing your message with us. Uh, we're going to put links to the social good club and to new approach, whatever links that you want, we'll put them in the show notes. Uh, cool. So anybody who sees the podcast can find out. We'll share it on our social media as well. Um, and do us a favor. Uh, don't be a stranger. Uh, come back. Um, you know, we do. The we podcast. have a lot more to discuss together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like for sure. We're leaving and, a lot and on you, the table. You did, get away, you did get away without telling your story. So uh, it you keeps know, you on keep happening. This, huh? <laughs> you know, at Judaism, it's a, it's we a learn master to ask class questions. Here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You take the Talmudic approach to podcasts, huh? Well, we might have to bring Marcelo on with us and uh, and see where we go, or Sharon, or anyone else who you've mentioned. Uh, really incredible yeah. people, but uh, uh, they're all yeah, they're all they're all wonderful. Um, but I'm grateful that you're on this journey, and I'm grateful that you're doing the work you are. We need everyone involved. We need everyone doing meaningful work of uh, not only looking after our people, but looking after humanity in this planet. It uh, the stakes are enormously high and only getting higher. So it's nothing small to say this was the work that engaged you and this was where you needed to go mm -hmm. and where you feel fulfilled because this is where we all need to be mm, thank you thank you not bad first guest we survived huh? we had fun too he was great oh yeah uh we we really need to keep following his work and uh bringing on more folks like that as well yeah you know and it, it's it, it's just interesting to hear how people are moved by what we were moved by that that's exactly what this whole thing is and you know this is not going to suddenly become a, a podcast where we get guests every week i think it's still going to be you and i talking mostly but if we find people i think we should put them on there's so many as he spoke about there's so many different entry points into these important conversations and jumping off points towards deeper meaning as well uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening. Please and remember, rate and review the podcast. Especially if this is a jumping off point for you to discover something new in your identity, absolutely share the podcast. We'll see you next time. <laughs>